0: I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're discussing the recent modernization of China's Navy and its shipbuilding capacity. In April 2018, President Xi Jinping suggested that, quote, the task of building a powerful Navy has never been as urgent as it is today. In recent years, the People's Liberation Army Navy has rapidly expanded its naval fleet, including submarines, warships, amphibious vessels, and auxiliaries. China's shipbuilding capacities and aircraft carrier program have also seen notable progress. To discuss the PLA Navy's transformation and its current and evolving capabilities, I'm joined by Dr. Andrew Erickson. Dr. Erickson is a professor of strategy, In the U.S. Naval War College's China Maritime Studies Institute. He is author of a study published in 2017 entitled, Chinese Naval Shipbuilding, an ambitious and uncertain course. Welcome to the China Power podcast, Andrew.
1: Well, Bonnie, uh, thank you. It's great to speak with you and uh, your listeners uh, today. So,
0: Andrew, China has undertaken sweeping reforms uh, that's aimed at modernizing its navy and transforming it into a world-class fighting force. Uh, To get us started, could you talk about the origin of the modernization process of uh, China's ships and, and the drivers behind it?
1: Uh, China's been building ships so rapidly uh, that Chinese sources often liken this to uh, dumping dumplings into soup broth, which sounds even better in the original uh, Chinese. Um, It's really getting its ships together, uh, so to speak, not only in quantity, but also in quality. Uh, China's already the world's largest commercial shipbuilder. It builds increasingly sophisticated models of all types of commercial ships, and more importantly to our discussion today also naval ships and uh, weapon systems there are several factors that have made this uh, possible that gave the ship the shipbuilding industry in China uh, early and inherent advantages one of its biggest biggest advantages interestingly enough was that it is inherently tied to coastal areas so when Mao disastrously relocated, much of China's industrial infrastructure inland during his disastrously inefficient Third Front campaign most shipbuilding couldn't go along uh, for the ride then when dung came into power and began reforms he prioritized the shipbuilding industry uh, to support uh, shipping and uh, foreign trade and that of course uh, proved to be a a very wise decision and helped underwrite the last uh, several decades of the rapid growth of uh, china's economy Uh, shipbuilding has also benefited from A a strong dual-use nature. This has really uh, facilitated China's ability to uh, transfer and absorb a lot of foreign technology, as well as uh, standards and design and and production techniques uh, into its uh, military uh, shipbuilding uh, industry. Uh, Finally, uh, there have been some real-world events that have uh, catalyzed uh, China's current naval build-out, which arguably dates to the uh, mid-1990s, Uh, Those events uh, include Operation Desert Storm in 1991, the Third Taiwan Strait Crisis in 1995-96, and even the Belgrade Embassy bombing in 1999. And what these events have in common is that they impressed uh, China's leaders with deep concern about their inability to counter American military uh, dominance. So hence, a great wave of Chinese naval shipbuilding, the results of which uh, we're discussing today.
0: So I'd like to drill down on the ways in which the Chinese Navy has transformed. Could you talk about how much the PLA Navy has expanded in terms of its its fleet size as well as the growing capabilities of the newer vessels that are entering the service.
1: Absolutely, and I'm glad you're focused on uh, ships because uh, they're literally the physical embodiment of naval uh, strategy. And what we've seen is uh, China parlaying the world's second largest economy and second largest defense budget into the world's largest ongoing comprehensive naval buildup. And it's already yielded the world's largest navy by number of ships. That is no exaggeration, according to the Pentagon's 2018 uh, China Military Power Report. Uh, ch- uh, China has uh, somewhere over a little over 300 uh, naval ships, and. The approximate equivalent figure uh, for the United States Navy is in uh, the high uh, 280s. Um, so, of course, there are different ways uh, there are different ways to measure these uh, things, but it's significant that uh, China already has that number of ships. And these are much more modern and high-quality ships than China had in the past. In the 90s and the 2000s. Uh, China China's naval, navy actually shrunk in size as it unloaded itself of many uh, obsolescent Soviet-style vessels. Now it's improving in both numbers and uh, sophistication. And the individual ships tend to be uh, much more high capacity, uh, larger in size, able to handle uh, more missions, and increasingly resembling those in the U.S. Navy, getting closer and closer to that gold standard. Although, as we're, we'll discuss, I'm sure, uh, China still does have a long way to go in some areas.
0: So China's rapid buildup of the Navy, obviously, is been undergirded by this incredible shipbuilding capability. And it wasn't that long ago that China was producing a very small number of ships. So what factors have enabled China to build so many ships so quickly?
1: as with so many other areas of uh, open source analysis of china's military it's often hard to get uh, some of the very specific data points but the larger picture is nonetheless uh, clear so in terms of numbers related to budgeting and process efficiency uh, the opacity of china's defense industry makes that very hard uh, to figure out uh, what analysts tend to do is uh, uh, when they try to calculate uh, Chinese ship production costs, uh, they make assumption about those relative costs compared to those for other countries. It's not exact science, but it's pretty clear that China can save significantly in uh, in a number of uh, areas. That's where the larger dynamics come in, and they're, they're pretty clear. So China benefits from having the world's largest shipbuilding infrastructure. A lot of it's new and very efficiently laid out. It has top-level leadership support as you explained in your introduction. Uh, importantly, it has some, uh, it in an effect enjoys some support and subsidies that just don't exist at all in the U.S. Um, Commercial production is uh, price-capped in part by the fact that uh, China has a relatively stable business and vendor base, internal business that keeps the industry going. That commercial production, in turn, helps subsidize military production because – the same conglomerates are engaging in both military and civilian ship production, and given the lack of commercial shipbuilding in the U.S. these days, uh, that's just not an not an option at all. Uh, furthermore, as James Mulvenon and others have written about. Uh, China has uh, the world's largest and most potent organizational structure for collecting, uh, disseminating, and applying foreign technology to its own efforts. So, as I said before, the dual use nature of China's uh, of, of shipbuilding is something that China has really uh, taken uh, taken advantage of. Uh, so a lot of uh, a lot of cost savings and efficiencies there, and technological acquisition uh, utilizing technologies that someone else struggled and paid uh, to develop those are all things helping China along. Um, the question in the future will be, can China across its shipbuilding industry uh, parlay its traditional cost competitiveness into uh, exceptional quantity uh, at sufficient quality the other things are are pretty easy and straightforward for China to do it 's the quality in certain very sophisticated areas that I think uh, is an ongoing challenge
0: so you've already talked about really some of these opportunities of having the synergies between um, commercial shipbuilding and military shipbuilding. Um, are there downsides that that are presented by this? I mean, maybe you can elaborate on this a little bit. And are there any other countries in the world? Um, Does Russia, for example, have also commercial shipbuilding that is essentially merged with military shipbuilding? And are are the Chinese copying or or trying to learn from any other models of, of other countries? Or are they just doing this their own way?
1: Well, I think, uh, I think China is pursuing commercial and military uh, synergies to an unusual degree. And this has both pluses and minuses. In fact, this was the subject of uh, really heated uh, discussion at our CMSI conference that ultimately resulted in the Chinese naval shipbuilding uh, volume that uh, that you kindly mentioned. So, some of the people, especially from the commercial industry, said, look, this is just not a good mix operationally. Um, it's it's challenging, if not counterproductive. And they, they cited a whole litany of areas where there can be civil-military in- incompatibilities from uh, work culture, security, standards, design, engineering, uh, to propulsion, construction, and time scales. But what's important to recognize is, Uh, both uh, Chinese publications and Chinese industrial policies are emphasizing dual-use construction. Uh, To paraphrase President Trump, it's happening, people. So we have to figure out more what does this this mean uh, for China. In fact, there's a Central Commission for Integrated Military and Civilian Development headed by none other than Xi Jinping uh, himself. Uh, it seems from our research that shipyard infrastructure is one of the areas with greatest potential for 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 some degree of uh, of integration. It's also worth noting that a production of certain types of high tech, high value added, high reliability commercial ships can be directly relevant to warship uh, production. So. Building simple ships like bulk carriers for commercial purposes doesn't really help significantly with military ship production, but liquid natural gas, liquid propane gas tankers, very large crude carriers, very high capacity container ships, and even, I kid you not, cruise ships in certain ways can help build capacities that are relevant uh, to, to warship production. It's also important to, to recognize that the limitations sometimes found in Chinese commercial shipbuilding are not evident to the same degree in China's prioritized military sector. So it generally gets better funding, better infrastructure, better human capital, uh, engineers with longer-term experience, uh, less rapid turnover. And uh, at the end of the day, here's where I rest my analytical case to date. The proof's really in the pudding. If you look at what the PLA Navy is receiving from China's shipbuilding industry, it's not receiving junk. These are increasingly sophisticated, capable vessels. And the reason we can be sure that the PLA Navy is increasingly satisfied, although it probably always wants to improve, is that there are longer and longer production runs of fewer and fewer classes of vessels. It seems like they think that they're getting uh, something right. Now, one last point on that. Uh, there are still some limitations that China is uh, is uh, struggling with. The largest, most sophisticated uh, surface combatants and submarines are not easy to produce. And they tend to involve uh, what you might call complex system of systems. And for developing that sort of apex technology and making it work in practice, China's, uh, what you could call China's preferred uh, second mover, uh, piecemeal integration of foreign Tech and domestic technologies can't offer a good enough result for that. So uh, that that is uh, one of the areas where China still has a lot of work to do. And a key example involves uh, aircraft carrier development.
0: Well, since you mentioned um, aircraft carriers, I recall when we first launched uh, the China Power website about three years ago. Um, we interviewed you and we talked about uh, the aircraft carrier program and uh, the first carrier, the Liaoning. Uh, that, of course, um, even though it was only three years ago, was really the tip of the iceberg. And there's been a lot of developments in China's carrier program in the last few years, so can you talk a little bit about um, the progress? What has China achieved, and what does it have left yet to do?
1: Well, uh, that last part is a great uh, is a is a great uh, lead-in because. Uh, China's really come a long way, but has uh, still further to go. It's clear why China wants aircraft carriers. It envisions itself as as a great uh, a great sea power, and aircraft carriers are really the apex predators of the sea when effectively uh, de- uh, built, developed, and uh, and uh, run. Um, they're also uh, the most modularized naval system. So when you think of a multi-decade lifespan for For these ships, they're some of the most relatively easy to upgrade. And that has great benefits for adapting to new technologies and new ways uh, of warfare. But it's very difficult uh, to do this in practice. And I was talking about Apex technology, system of systems that are difficult. Um, Marine and aviation propulsion, power and launch really fall into that uh, category of really difficult stuff that China's struggling with. So I would say for China's aircraft carrier program, a more evolutionary trajectory seems uh, likely. And I call this uh, crawl, walk, run. Uh, in fact, the plan right now is really still crawling and not even walking yet. So it, China's shown that it can build uh, decent carrier uh, hulls, but that's not the real challenge of an aircraft carrier. It's the system of systems of aviation operations from from the deck of, of the carrier. Um, uh, delivering payloads is essential to the performance of that. And it's actually a lot of work to get that uh, payload an, aloft and keep it aloft. Um, uh, you might say there's no such thing as a, a free launch. Uh, so measured against... Uh, the gold standard of U.S. carrier operations, Liaoning is really just the beginning. Uh, It's designed for air defense, not strike it can get a basic flanker type aircraft like the J15 beyond its unrefueled range from a land-based airfield but then that aircraft really can't carry much much uh, in the way of uh, fuel or or weapons um, and then there's you know when i had the pleasure and the honor of uh, teaching aboard uh, USS uh, Nimitz uh, some years ago i saw how they performed their their operations and they the the personnel aboard kept talking about tr- what they call Called tribal knowledge' it's kind of intangible knowledge of of the art of carrier operations very demanding and you can't go and download that anywhere no matter how good uh, no matter how good your your cyber theft capabilities are, so so that's a, that's another challenge uh, for China. Uh, the next step is going to be the walking stage. So after China gets proficient with uh, Liaoning and has and has really launched uh, a success, successful successor carrier. Uh, that's, that's likely at some point to have uh, catapults which enable uh, larger aircraft and, uh, and payloads. And uh, deploying, for example, heavier airborne early warning aircraft will improve situational awareness and China's ability to uh, defend the carrier running is still a long way off. As I believe China perceives running, and certainly as the U.S. would perceive running, it requires a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, uh, probably with an electromagnetic launch system. And the challenge with that electromagnetic launch system is there's, there's not a lot for China to learn from or, or copy or emulate, if you will, right now, because the U.S. is still struggling to, to perfect that. So a long way to go for China's Aircraft carrier operations.
0: Do we know how many aircraft carriers China is building, and what their target is for the total inventory?
1: You know, uh, there's there's really uh, there are periodic mentions in various media sources. I I don't know of any data that I would consider authoritative and reliable in this regard. I would, however, uh, point to uh, two rules of thumb that could dictate, that could help uh, explain how many China would want based on what its goals are. Many Chinese discussions that you can easily find from open sources will talk about uh, the necessity of having three carriers in the overall infant in the overall inventory for every one that's deployable at sea at a given time. But I think the U.S. experience, at least with global operations, has been something closer to a four-to-one ratio. And what that suggests is when it comes to training and refitting and all the other things you need to do with an aircraft carrier, besides actually deploying it on its desired missions, it just, it requires a significant fleet just to have a basic a basic degree of availability for for missions desired. So I think as as open sources show us more about what China uh, seems to be wanting exactly with its aircraft carrier development, it's unforgiving ratios like those that will suggest the realities of what might be possible.
0: So obviously, having a carrier is not the same as having a carrier battle group. Um, So can you talk about whether China is making headway toward that goal and toward the, you know, the larger goal of really building a global blue water navy. Is that their ambition? And if so, how far are they from it?
1: Well, they're definitely moving in that direction, and they're developing key elements of a carrier group. So these include uh, replenishment vessels to sustain the carrier group at sea, uh, and uh, both cruisers with robust air defenses and offensive missiles, and also nuclear-powered submarines with potent anti-ship cruise missiles to defend the the carrier group. in terms of replenishment vessels china is currently building the type 901 integrated supply ship and this can provide a uh, uh, fuel, food, and uh, some spare parts. Where it's limited compared to its closest U.S. analog, the U.S. supply class, is its ability to transfer ordnance. Um, it's limited. It could furnish, say, air-to-air missiles for the Liaoning. But the Type 901 over time could be refitted with more ability to transfer ordnance, and that's a very useful indicator to watch for because to the extent that China modifies these vessels in that direction, it would suggest an intent to really come closer to emulating the U.S. in long-distance power projection, blue-water capabilities. Um, now, as as for uh, as for uh, the Type 055 cruiser, and I understand that on your website you'll have some uh, multimedia presentations that can give information on this, and that 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 would be, I think, very useful uh, for for listeners, but. I think the key with the Type 055 cruiser is going to be, does it have the command and control facilities described in open sources? That's what would be required to make it a centerpiece of future Chinese carrier groups. My hunch is it's going in that direction, but but we'll have to see. Um, finally, uh, nuclear powered submarines are key to escorting a carrier safely uh, if, if, if China is going to approach the U.S. gold standard that it so clearly admires and to which I think it really uh, aspires. Here, China has the most work to do, arguably. Uh, its current nuclear powered attack submarines don't appear to be good enough at detecting. Uh, Uh, potential enemy submarines, and they also appear to be loud enough that they're too detectable themselves. So uh, I think China's working hard in that area, but particularly with regard to undersea warfare technology development. It's just an expensive and difficult area to progress in. So we'll have to watch that space and see how China does. And I know, I know there will be progress, but that's probably the lagging component of, of China's uh, nascent uh, carrier group, if you will.
0: So if you look more broadly at the PLA Navy modernization effort, what are the things that we should be looking at for- over the next few years? Are there specific benchmarks for success? Um, How might we expect China to actually employ these growing capabilities you talked a lot about the aircraft carrier really being for uh, the purpose of prestige uh, because uh, so many of the great powers have aircraft carriers and because China has traditionally looked to the United States and modeled in some ways its military modernization on uh, the u.s as sort of the 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 this the gold uh, standard so you um, how do you see them modernizing the future? And the, what do you see as the potential for using the capabilities that they are developing?
1: Absolutely. And I sense we're uh, we're starting to wrap up here. So allow me to make some larger points that I, I think are important. This is such a vital subject. And even though China has a long way to go, say, with aircraft carrier production, it's making, it, it's it's having a tremendous uh, amount of progress overall. Um, Really, uh, its maritime transformation is the only example in modern history of a land power becoming both a land and a sea power successfully and uh, sustainably. it's also uh, really a very rare case of a top-tier non-Western sea power in peacetime. In fact, it's one of the few instances of that even occurring uh, since the the brief. Uh, power projection across the Indian Ocean of Zheng He's voyages during the Ming, Ming dynasty. What we have now is, for the first time in six centuries, arguably, commercial sea power development is flowing away from its traditional Euro-Atlantic bastions, really back toward an Asian land power that's now going seaward to stay. And I think military sea power, naval power, is is, is poised to follow that that gradient. Uh, that's going to have a huge impact for, uh, for, for the world. Um, now, China's approach is what you might call a requirements-based approach. It's, it's the kind of logical, strategic approach that many complain that we don't have sufficiently in the U.S. being very budget-driven. China develops a strategy, China applies that strategy, and it's building and deploying a fleet accordingly. Right now, it's transitioning from what it calls a near-seas to a near and far-seas navy and uh, that is uh, that is increasing some challenges and requirements dispersing that fleet over greater distances is making it more difficult to protect and to support so here are some of the requirements that you're asking about Uh, china's going to have to make progress in these areas to achieve its goals long endurance propulsion really especially nuclear power which is the ultimate gold standard Area air defenses uh, to protect both its individual surface combatants and the emerging carrier groups that we were talking about. Uh, Land attack and strike warfare, uh, including from uh, its deck aviation assets, including aircraft carriers. Anti-submarine warfare, also acoustic quieting for for subs, so both to help them survive and to help in the contested conditions, and to help them search more effectively without being limited by their own noise, kind of getting getting in the way. And finally, broad coverage uh, C four ISR for situational awareness. So, China definitely pursuing these objectives. Uh, it's making progress, but it will take years before it fully accomplishes them. That's where that's where uh, things are right now. But uh, to close on uh, to close on some larger points and implications. Already, uh, the ship design and building advances that China's achieved to date are increasing the plan's ability to contest sea control in a widening arc out into the western uh, Pacific. And uh, China's making making real progress in building up its fleet here. Uh, it's producing two to three surface combatants for every one the U.S. produces. So uh, in, in, in part because of that, uh, if current trends continue... Uh, China will be able to deploy a combat fleet that, in overall order of battle, so we're talking hardware-specific terms here, is quantitatively larger and even qualitatively on a par with that of the U.S. Navy by 2030. Now, whether China can actually stay on that trajectory, given, given looming maintenance costs and given downside risks to its economy, that's another question, and uh, it's linked to many of the other uncertainties about China's future that you're exploring elsewhere in your China power project, so I, I commend you on that. As for the shipbuilding uh, specific part, um, it's really akin to uh, the situation in which uh, a, a, a python consumed a goat and it tasted great, but now it's straining the python's digestive tract. So. There's a major midlife maintenance bill for the overhauls of all China's new ships. It's going to start coming due in the next five to ten years. That's going to require a lot of resources in money and in shipyard space. And it's going to put production and maintenance in potential competition for China for the first time. Now, by then, China's aging society and other challenges might conceivably reorient resource allocation it may stimulate what what people call guns versus butter or even guns versus canes debates and all the while china is going to be facing an unforgiving reality the true long-term cost of sustaining top tier sea power tends to eventually outpace economic growth by a substantial margin so China, in conclusion, China's achieved a rapid rise at sea thus far. It's already posing challenges uh, for U.S. and r- regional interests. It's having an impact on the, on the world system. But China's unlikely to avoid these sorts of challenging currents that have bedeviled many sea powers in the past. And uh, you can read in the media are challenging the U.S. Navy today.
0: Well, thank you, um, Andrew, for joining us today. Um, Really terrific discussion. Uh, Dr. Erickson, again, is professor of strategy in the U.S. Naval War College's China Maritime Studies Institute. Glad you could be with us today.
1: Thank you very much, Bonnie. It's been a great pleasure.